I am born to the Navajo tribe. My clans are Nastasha Tabaha and uh, Torachini. And um, yeah, I grew up in Gallatin, New Mexico. I currently reside in Portland, Oregon on occupied Chinook land. And uh, I am a transdisciplinary artist. So with that, I, I tend to describe that more as being more conceptual based and theory-based, so a lot of the work that I choose to focus on really focus or really like draws more inspiration from looking into uh, the conceptual aspects of a work or a piece of work, and then the medium becomes the vehicle by which I um, address those topics. So that can be either like photography, um, text-based works, also postering um, a little bit of street art, uh, also film and video sound and installation-based pieces as well. And when you say transdisciplinary, is that a term used commonly in the art world, or is that something that you came up with? And explain what it means. So transdisciplinary is just, it's more of a fancy way of saying intermedia or multimedia. Um, I like to use it because it has ties to other ways of thinking. I, I, I like the language that is, uh, that is applied to the word trans or transient or transitory. Um, this like state of being in flux. So w- when I use the word transdisciplinary, um, I guess I'm referencing that, but I'm also referencing like multimedia artwork. So really when really it just means it's just a fancier way of saying or a more updated way of saying like multimedia. Because I feel like multimedia is more of like a 90s type of term. And since then, like, media has been updated. Disciplines have been updated. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, that's more where, where, where that term comes from for myself. And so within that context, what kind of medium is fascinating you the most right now? Like, what are you, what are you interested in? Or is it one thing? Um, it's a variety of things. I think toward the end of my my BFA at the Pacific Northwest College of Art, I decided to focus more on curatorial aspects of my work. And with that, I, I helped to curate, with, along with uh, the Queer Union at PNCA, the show called Where Do We Go From Here, uh, which was focused on HIV and age-related art and activism. And then that really helped push me more into um, curating my thesis show, Bury My Art at Wounded Knee, Blood and Guts in the Art School Industrial Complex. And during that whole time, there weren't many courses at PNCA that were, were teaching um, curation. And so I, I took it upon myself to, to focus on curation as an alternative medium. So it was a way for me to sort of, um, or it's become a way for me to, to create a conversation that I feel is very relevant and necessary and apply certain aesthetics into the curatorial aspect as well along with working with, with the other artists. It, it, it's a little odd to think of curation as um, a type of like discipline or um, trying to put it in line with like my photographic work or um, some of my writing. But uh, I feel like 
I feel like it's just as important and relevant. And it's kind of working to do the same thing. What was some of the content that you discussed in Bury My Art at Wounded Knee, if you don't mind talking about it? Bury My Art at Wounded Knee was really trying to focus on political, politically-based artwork. Um, and with that, I was really interested in learning about Indigenous history. And I had to do it at this art institution that really was focusing on more of this like Western-based um, knowledge and history and cultural lineage um, that I feel like a lot of schools and institutions are really focusing on right now, um, or have focused on for centuries. So while I'm at PNCA, I also have to learn about like my own identity. And a lot of art is identity based, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, they're telling me to like focus on like queerness while at the same time being like, oh, well, you know, you should focus on being uh, on like your indigenous heritage as well, your indigenous culture. And hearing that made me not want to do it, you know, because it, it was always, so it, or it made me very skeptical about like looking into it in, in a very uh, specific, it felt like it was a very specific way that I had to go about it. Really, I was just being stubborn. And um, I think that's just sort of like my, my, uh, a little bit of my personality, you know, like resisting being told like what to do. So... Bury My Art at Wounded Knee, I was learning about indigenous history, indigenous culture, my own culture, and I'll make all these connections. And like the, the Diné have like this history of the long walk. And I feel like I've, I've known about that history for quite some time. Um, but there were other events in indigenous history that like had these overwhelming impacts on indigenous peoples. Like there, there were events that we all know about, that we've all heard about, that have like torn us apart um, and traumatized us. So when I was looking into the history, I wanted to learn more about like the incident at Wounded Knee. And in learning that history about Wounded Knee, like you also like unpack uh, the occupation of Alcatraz by the Indians of all tribes. And then you also like learn about the occupation of Wounded Knee um, by the American Indian movement. And so then I started to think about the civil rights movement and a lot of the uh, political art that was coming out during that time. And I wondered why, when we were looking back at some, like there was a show that came through, I think it was called Signs of Change, and they had some of, some of the artwork uh, that, was, that came out of the American Indian movement and the Indians of all tribes. But I was wondering when I, when I would look uh, for that politically charged artwork there just wasn't a wide collection of it. Like it, it was very, it's very hard to find, um, or it wasn't very hard to find at least two years ago. I feel like a lot of it has come up like on Tumblr uh, and on various blogs now. But I was really curious that if, if like the Black Panther Party or if like the women's rights movement or even the gay liberation movement, if there were artists who were dedicated to um, creating these images um, of the revolution, I guess I was just really interested in what type of artwork would have been created if there had been 
more of a, a, a sector of those movements dedicated to creating politically charged artwork. In, in the same way that a lot of uh, politically based artists during that time period like worked for the, uh, the, the uh, Black Panther movement, or sorry, the, um, yeah, the Black Panther movement, and also like the, the, women, the women's rights movement and the feminist movement. So I was really, I, I guess I was just curious what that would look like. And so I wanted to ask artists um, to create politically, or, sorry, politically charged artwork. Um, and that was pretty much uh, what Barry Art at Wounded Knee was like striving for. Um, and in the call for art, it, it's asking for that. And what I get in response is something completely different. And so then I realized immediately that there are numerous um, indigenous artists out there who are very political they're just not speaking in the exact language that I was hoping for. But it's all relevant. Like, it's all a part of the same conversation. And when I was organizing that show and putting it together, um, that's just one thing that sort of came out of, of the call for entries, was realizing that there's just different ways that artists are comfortable in being political and different um, voices that people have added into the conversation for indigenous resistance. And so I, I putting that show together, like it, it really opened up my eyes to the various ways that indigenous artwork has been political and continues to be political. And it's helped me realize that like in order for indigenous artwork to, to evolve along with indigenous cultures, like we need to be really interrogating the way indigenous art is spoken about within the contemporary art movement, but also within like Western art history as well. The thing that's interesting to me about that show and hearing about it is the huge amount of artists that participated, you know, and how you connected in in that way. And I feel like it's really interesting because of the term like indigenous art and native art, you know, and how do you break out of a a box or a stereotype like that and still maintain community and resource in that way. And I feel like you did a really good job at riding that line. And so that's what I was kind of curious about was what the, what your feeling was in the aftermath of curating a show like that. I had the, I had the idea for bury my art at wounded knee and it started off just more with like the words bury my art at wounded knee. And then I added in blood and guts in the art school and death complex because I wanted to put my the institution that I was um, that I was attending the Pacific Northwest College of Art I wanted to sort of call them out um, for not having a class dedicated to indigenous art making but also for not speaking about it um, within art history context as well like it, it just gets thrown into like this anthropological uh, field and I don't like that's I don't feel like that's properly respecting indigenous peoples or indigenous art so really afterward, I, it took me a while to really figure out like how I felt about it. And I feel like you kind of just have to let, let the dust settle and see what happens. Mm. Um, all I can think about is the way that it affected that institution, mm. which is what I wanted it to do. And I feel like it, it, it has had positive re repercussions for that institution. Um, I'm not saying that I, that me curating a show necessarily like help them build a class for um that was focusing more on on, on curatorial aspects of art making um but after 
that semester, after the semester after I was done, they began offering a course on curation, and they now offer a uh, a course on Indigenous art history, wow. um, which is pretty great. And at the same time, um, with the help of Dan McClure from the library, um, and with with building that show and also writing my thesis paper. I also took th- took that as an opportunity to help them build a better um, collection of indigenous themed books. So with that, we got like Dean Raider's um, Engage Resistance, Like a Hurricane, which is about the um, American Indian movement, um, and also some books by Andrea Smith. But I mean, now all this stuff is coming up about her. So <laughs> <laughs> I do. But also poetry by like Lucy Papahanzo and like Joy Harjo. Um, which I feel like is very important, right? Like we need to honor poetry as like there's this alternative way of thinking that needs to be honored and legitimized. I feel like poetry is a very valid form of theory, at least in the Western sense. And it kind of gets overlooked at as this like, and maybe I can only speak about this within like um, native writing or indigenous writing as like, you know, having this like native knowledge or whatever. But I mean, you can look at the work of like Adrian Rich and Audre Lorde, and you can study that as like a template for revolutionary change or creating changes within communities. How do you balance participating in the art world and critiquing it at the same time? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm really still trying to figure that out. I feel like, um, yeah, because I've, I've participated in it to a certain degree. Like, I, I haven't completely. Like, I, I um, want to apply for uh, shows that work within institutions. So I'm wondering how that, that will be. Like, how, how I will um, address that in the future. Um, I really don't know how I balance it out because I haven't been in, in a lot of shows that work with, like, major um, art institutions. I think the the closest that I've gotten is, like, working with the Portland Institute of Contemporary Art and getting a precipice fund for the One Flaming Arrow uh, Festival, uh, which was curated by, like, partially curated by RISE. And I, I think that that's been, like, I, I really value what the Portland Institute of Contemporary Art is, but I think it is a little bit of a, um, a challenge in figuring out how you work with an institution that is supportive, but that ultimately is still an institution. So that's, you know, that, that's something that uh, is still worth sort of reflecting on. But uh, going forward, I I think I would like to sort of really look into the work more of this collective known as uh, Group Material, which uh, was really active in the 90s and addressed like healthcare, um, HIV and AIDS related issues, and a plethora of other social topics. And they were more like East Coast, New York based. And also I'd, I'd like to look at the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, who was um, an active member of group material as well. Um, but working in this way that the art institution um, is highlighting your work, but is also helping to make your work complete. So, so for instance, like Felix Gonzalez-Torres, he has this piece called Untitled Portrait of Ross. And uh, 
it's just this collection of candy that weighed the exact weight of his lover uh, when he was healthy. And his lover, like, eventually gets uh, an AIDS diagnosis. So this this piece is uh, put in... It, it, it's up to the institution how they want to display it, but oftentimes it's seen as like put into a corner and just a large mound and pile of candy. And um, there's no real human element into it except for the viewer or the, uh, the gallery participant who comes in, picks up the candy, and, and leaves. You know? um, so they eat the candy, and this, this is a, a conversation about, like, about AIDS, about love, about um, his lover and also about bringing this virus into the world and how everyone is sort of like responsible for that or it's a very sensitive time period that this comes out of like it's not, like the early 90s so it's like the height of the AIDS crisis but yeah he goes out into the like the the viewer goes out into the world with this piece of candy and eventually this pile of candy dissolves weight and eventually is gone so it's also speaking about like death and loss but the the art institution and agreeing to display this artwork also agrees to refill it. So a lot of like this, this, um, a lot of the, the, the capital comes from the, uh, from the art institution. They take on the responsibility of purchasing the candy, having the candy there. And then the, the viewer, the person who um, interacts with the piece of artwork, like gets to leave with a piece of the artwork mm. as well. So I really like, this alternative way of thinking about um, the way art is not only um, displayed, but also how other people can walk away with it and experience it, um, and therefore also affect the conversation of, or at least complete, like the conversation of what the artwork is about. Mm. You know, it's it then becomes like this collective experience. So I'd, I'd, I would be really interested in figuring out like how to at least how to work that into like my process as well, like going forward. Well, it seems like you do from what I've seen with Rise, which um, maybe if you could explain what Rise is, and then you offer like free files of your work for people to download, print, and put up, right? Or can you talk about that? Yeah, so the idea of Rise came back in 2010 when I constructed this labyrinth, and it was telling this story again at PNCA about this like native North American storyline. And, um, you enter the labyrinth and it starts off with like events that are like pre 1492. And this is like before I really learned more history. So it's, it's, it's very basic. <laughs> like, um, and, and how I constructed it. Like I, I was really proud of myself at the time, but like, when I go back there now, I'm like, oh, I probably wouldn't use this term. I probably wouldn't highlight that. And I would probably add these details in, you know, but it was, it's, it's a very small labyrinth. And, um, like it, it speaks about like, it, it just brings up important dates or important events. So it talks about like the Tuscarora passive resistance as like, uh, one of the first forms of passive resistance, um, in North America. It talks, it brings up like the BIA schools. It, calls out like different chiefs it also like creates a placeholder for um indigenous women and their voices because i feel like that's an important part of my work is highlighting that and also like two spirits and and as you get closer into the center it's all chronological but as you come closer to the center the rocks that i um that i made out of plaster they all become blank so it, it leaves this like open end for the future like 
pages that are yet to be written, history that's yet to be um, spoken of. So yeah, I that that's kind of like where Raya started from, and I wanted like that that piece is where when I first started using the term Raya, and that was more centered around this idea of of creating a radical indigenous network that was focused on support and education. And it I didn't I really didn't do much with Rise or think about I, I like Rise was in the back of my mind, but like I really didn't start working on things until Bury My Art at Wounded Knee. Um, and at that time I had changed it to radical indigenous survivance and empowerment because I wanted to reference like survivance as like this um, this subsection of uh, of critical inquiry for indigenous studies, um, and I wanted to focus on empowering indigenous communities as well. And so through that, I, I had this idea that Rice was going to be more this imagined collective that I was going to make all this work, and then that would be it. Again, going with this like bury my art at wounded knee idea of like political ephemera, creating like this entire body of work, and then just having it like having it be there, and then walking away from it and then seeing what it looks like in 10 years, like mm -hmm. seeing the response to it, like culturally or within the art world and in, and within indigenous communities as well. But like that, that didn't happen, which I think is really great. And I'm really thankful for that. Like there were other artists who were really interested in what Rise is. And then I started creating more posters for what are just under, under um, the auspice of Rise. So can you give an example of like one of what one of the posters looks like? Yeah, so the the one poster that comes to mind is the one that I feel like uh, more people respond to, which is the No Way Feminism, and it's this. I, I can I can briefly speak about how I started that image. Okay. I don't remember why, but I was just uh, on the internet one day, and I came across this image of this uh, this woman who was from the Zia tribe, and she has like some marks on her face. And then she's shirtless. So it's all this still this like anthropological perspective of native women, right? That I feel like gets really pushed in like this in National Geographic. So it cuts off just right above like where her areola is. And my response to that was being like, I I want to use this image and I want I don't want that to be like the the, the central point. And because like we live in a society that like objectifies bodies so much. I wanted to sort of not necessarily cover it up, but not make that the central point. So I was also I was reading a lot of Andrea Smith during that time, and I was reading about uh, how she's speaking about how this feminist movement is like starting before um, a lot of the first, second, and third waivers, and how it has ties to resisting patriarchal colonization. And I, I just have like a very like DIY and punk background. So I, I just thought to put the words no way feminism um, over the area where, where you can sort of like see her cleavage start to come down. Um, and that therefore would like, you know, draw your eyes up to like the, the rest of the image and create like this more empowering sort of image. It felt very blank. So then in the background, I took the American flag and I turned it upside down and just created like a pattern of, of the American flag that would, that would sort of also, um, draw your eye away from what it was like at first, like eventually you would recognize, Oh, that that's 50 stars. And those are bars and stripes. Like that's the American flag. 
because I also like change the colors as well to these like very uh, like a light blue and like a tan, uh, a light red as well. Um, so it was also like deconstructing the American flag and creating like an indigenous narrative for the American flag with indigenous people. Because there's also like Lucy Tapahanso talks about like these Navajo weavers who during the long walk are creating their own symbolism of the American flag for their culture and how they've survived in order to go back to their homeland, you know? So they, they take the symbol of oppression and turn it into the symbol of empowerment and remove sort of the context of America at the same time. So um, I think I thought that was really beautiful and powerful. So a lot of these images for this decolonized feminism poster series just have like some sort of appropriated American flag in the background that has been altered. And then they take terms like indigenous feminism, decolonized feminism, proto-feminism, and no-way feminism as ways to sort of like um, deter the conversation around like white liberal feminism and just push it into like this whole new different realm. And that, that poster series I felt like was more important to put under this idea of rise than it was to completely credit it for myself. Now, you know, I, I think like people pretty much associate, or at least from what I've been told, associate certain aesthetics with the way I do my work and the way I work. So it becomes more recognizable that my hand has touched a poster. Initially, I, I really didn't want that to be the case. I wanted it just to be this idea of rise. But yeah, it was more important for me to, to credit this idea of what rise is and the mission statement of creating um, empowerment within indigenous communities than it was for myself. Like, I feel like these images, I, they don't belong to me. They're all appropriated. A lot of my work is research-based, so it's also honoring like, uh, a lot of the, the labor and work that has gone into learning about like indigenous feminism or feminism or indigenous resistance in history. So RISE becomes more of a collective experience for indigenous peoples. We're taught to associate feminism with female, you know, and you you kind of are are breaking that stereotype to that gender stereotype in in this project. And can you talk about how you how that makes you feel? Luckily, I feel like the community that I've been a part of has been very supportive of myself being a feminist. I feel like maybe other feminist communities might not feel as comfortable knowing that like a a cis male identified um queer mo is like making this work you know but like i i tend to take a chapter from bell hooks as problematic as she is and speaking about speaking out against patriarchal and patriarchal ways of or patriarchy and patriarchal ways of thinking and really critiquing the way that 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 culture has really pushed that onto people i also think it's it's important to consider that like uh i was raised in an all-female household, like, my, my mother was pretty pretty much, like, the head of the household. And, you know, she spoke very highly of, like, her mother and her grandmother um, within, like, Diné culture. 
and then I, you know, was raised by like four older sisters as well. So it's always sort of just been there. But I've also realized like in in my time, like just thinking, like learning more about feminism, learning more about patriarchy, as important and critical as it has been for my work and my process, to know that that I have like this very like um, female-driven um, childhood and um, experience, I, I also realize like that has also been in at least for like my my sisters and my mother and the society and the community that we grew up in, it has all still like been shaped and it has all still been informed by patriarchy. Mm. You know, so like my mother is like we we grew up traditional, but we also grew up Catholic. So, um, yeah, I feel like a traditional Diné culture and also just traditional indigenous cultures um, were structured very differently. But through colonial contact and through forced assimilation, they um, sort of get shifted into this more like hyper-masculine and patriarchal um, way of being, both like within, both with how like the tribe functions, but also um, how family structures function as well. Mm. And then the same can be said of like the of Western religion as well. Like it's very patriarchal like form, and um, it hasn't it hasn't changed and it hasn't shifted. So I, I feel like that's that's mainly been my sort of like my process as working as a feminism is like learning more about like how to dismantle patriarchy or at least see how I benefit from it and how I can help shift that or break that down a little bit. And I still, I still feel like it's important for me to create that voice because I, I, I also feel that an indigenous queer male isn't necessarily like playing at the same level as like an indigenous straight male, mm-hmm. you know? And that's not playing at the same level as like a straight white male. <laughs> so it's like, it's still really fucked up. And like, it's not just, it's not just fucked up like, at at a um, at a national level, but also on reservations and for indigenous communities as well, and uh, that's still something we need to work on. What would you say racial indigenous queer politics are to you? Well, right now, I feel like I should have said this earlier because I feel like um, working as an artist and working as an activist and having those two things so interlinked together, I feel like my politics are always changing. Mm. So like what I say now is something I might not believe in in like six months, you know, and I might like hit myself on the head for saying the wrong thing or at least in believing things in a very specific way at this point. But it's also important for me as an activist to say the things that I'm feeling because it's there's been so much time in my youth that I just spent like not saying anything and just like cowering behind like a journal, you know? Mm. So, but yeah, so I feel like right now for myself, racial indigenous identity. Yeah. And and the politics of being queer and indigenous and just kind of the whole, the whole idea of identity, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. I think, um, I think indigenous identity is important. I really question its authenticity though. Like to a certain degree, I really do because and and this goes like I, I see these articles on like Indian Country Today Media Network about like Navajo men and like the five import like why their long hair is important and everything, you know? <laughs> and like I see that and I, I see it come up and it like 
I get conflicted because I also, I'm like, okay, like, my dad has long hair. My mom told me the story about how her grandfather said that she would marry a Navajo man with long hair when he realized that was important, you know? And so then I'm thinking, like, a year ago, like, oh, I should probably grow my hair out. Like, you know, that's one way to honor my culture. And... <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, no, like, I think it's also really important for myself as an indigenous person or just as a regular human being or as a queer person or whoever the hell that I am. Like, I also think that it's important for me to be who I am and express myself the way that I feel is necessary. And like, a lot of that goes along with some of the mission statements that I that I write up, some of the manifestos that I write up as well, That that is more about creating and evolving this idea of indigenous identity. So um, I think that's something that I'm still really challenging right now, especially as being, being an urban Indian, whatever the hell that is. Like growing up in, in Portland, Oregon, um, and being so displaced from like the four sacred mountains of the Diné people, I still feel really empowered as like a, a Navajo Diné person, as an indigenous person, like being out here. Like I can create... A community and I can focus on indigenous issues in a place that uh, has a very like white centered way of thinking but it is something that I, I think that I know that indigenous people ask themselves on a consistent basis and as an indigenous queer male I still feel somehow um, exempt from having these conversations about indigenous male identity within indigenous cultures and I still feel like my voice isn't as legitimized, not only because I'm an indigenous queer person, but also because I don't live on the reservation. So then I have to ask myself, like, where the priorities are for indigenous people. Because if I'm going to get questioned for it, then I have to question, like, the people who are obviously, like, a little leery about, like, my practice, who I am, and what I'm doing when I'm not with my people. So yeah, I don't know, that, that's an ever-evolving thing, and that's something that I've, that, that like, obviously affects me in something as simple, but also as powerful as my hair. And I feel empowered being able to have the choice on how I want to present myself, on how I want to appear to the outside world. Do you think that your work would be different if you had grown up on the on the reservation and like grew up in more of a traditional way? Well, I grew up in Gallup, New Mexico, so oh, okay. I didn't grow up very far. I mean, you know, it's pretty much a border town. Yeah. But still, I was exposed to like Catholicism. I mean, just the other day, I was looking up some of my old writing, and there's a lot of references to religion and mm. God, and um, that made me feel really creepy. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, writing about, like, Adam and Eve and God and everything, and then it just made me feel really gross because it was, like, holy shit, like, this has had, like, such a huge impact on me, and I didn't want it, and, yeah, it, it, I, I, I see, like, the lasting impacts of it. 
I don't think that if I grew up on the reservation, I would I would have escaped that either. Like, there's a shit ton of churches on the reservation, especially the Navajo reservation. Um, and there's still, like, this, like, religious hierarchy that's like, oh, we're better than, like, traditional, like, Indians. And, um, but, you know, at the same time, I was also raised um, to respect and honor, like, traditional ways and ceremony with the, with the, within the Diné culture, which I'm really thankful for. It was just really confusing, you know, because I would go to church and you'd pray to God and then I'd put out corn pollen in the morning and pray to the holy people. And I would just be like, what, like, are, where, where did these two people exist? You know, like, are they in the same? <laughs> like, that was a really, it was really, like, it was really, like, confusing growing up. But yeah, I, 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 I feel like my artwork would definitely be different if I grew up on the reservation. Now, I've seen your work, uh, some of those posters that you were talking about. I've seen them up around New Mexico because that's where I'm living at right now. And so do you come back? Um, have you come back and visited this area? And do you go kind of put your work up around? Or do you have like folks that are your homies out here doing some street work for you? Or is this, <laughs> is this too much of an expose? <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I totally, I've, I've only put up work in Gallup and on the reservation. Um, so any other work that exists outside of Gallup and the reservation, I have not put up myself. Um, so if that's out there and if people have put that out there, then I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. I've you know? seen it in Santa Fe, you know, like Albuquerque. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's really good to hear. Um, I wanted to do that, but I haven't had the opportunity to, and that's, that's really what I, I hope those posters will do, you know, is just get pasted around. I mean, that's why they're for free. Um, that's why they're part of this collective, um, experience and process. But I, you know, I only had an opportunity to put them up in Gallup and um, on the Navajo Reservation as well when I went back. And that felt really great. You know, I go back every now and then. I've gone back twice since then. And it's nice to see that they're still up, you know, because I think in these regions, Native women need to be empowered. And I'm hoping this helps to empower them. Yeah, so I, I just think that's important. Hmm. So let's talk about where you are headed. Like, what's your next step? You know, it seems like university was a big part of your recent past. So now, so now what do you hope to do artistically and creatively? Well, I, my mother, whenever I go back, like, she tells me a lot about um, her great-grandmother and just, just our whole, like, family's experience as much as she can, you know, and uh, I have found out that I'm part Zuni, and so when I introduce myself, my whole clan system to people, I say, Nastasia Tabahe, and that is honoring, like, this great-great-grandmother who was Zuni. So, yeah, she apparently, like, would go back. My, right, my great-great-grandfather <clears throat> would let her go back for Shalico, and uh, eventually one day she'd or one year she just never returned for whatever reason. We don't really know what happened. Um, but I feel like going forward, I kind of want to look more into that Zuni ancestry and also honor that with my work or through my work. So I think that's what I'm focusing on now is learning that history and then also learning about Wewa. 
I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. I've I've never I've only like read it. I've never seen it. But um, he was like a third gendered uh, holy person with the Zuni people. So their books like you know refer to him as like a man woman or a spiritual healer. Um, and uh, well, I think with a lot of indigenous cultures, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sexualities that work outside the American and Western gender binary. And so for the Zuni people, I know that was present. And I know for the Navajo that was present as well. So I'm really interested in working with that within my work because you can go back to the Navajo reservation. You can go back to this region and you can just see like how much hate there is for homosexual people, homosexual Navajos and everything. So the, the funny thing about it is like, um, it's not funny, actually. It's kind of stupid. It's like if you were to engage in a conversation with a lot of, with, with like a larger like Navajo community and be like, hey, like actually the way that you see um, homosexuality, just a lot of the way like the, the political system is set up on the reservation and the religion and how that's tied to religion. If you could see that this is all tied to this assimilationist um, agenda you would realize that, like, yeah, we do need to change that and that it is really jacked up. But, you know, because there's, I think part of it is, like, because there's, like, ties to um, respecting elders and getting this, like, intergenerational knowledge, at the same time, we're sort of refrained from really stepping up to the bat and having that legitimized. It's been like, wait, like, we've sort of studied this and, you know, we may have studied it at, at a Western institution, but like we've also had to deal with that Western institution and we've also had to learn our own history and we've also had to learn everything that they're teaching us so we can use it against them, you know, and we've all done that like through language. So it's like we're, we're coming here as educated Native people, but we're not coming here to down talk anyone or anyone's perspective more than anything we're trying to bring tools that we've learned from these Western institutions so we can use them against this larger institution, so we can use it against this country. And maybe they would jump on board. Maybe they'd be like, oh, yeah, wait, yeah, we totally wanted you to go to college. We totally wanted you to go do these things. And just because you're not, like, you're not, you know, a doctor or, like, a Native American lawyer, like, <laughs> we're still going to legitimize you. Anyway, I, I think working, working with exposing that or working with like how um, sexuality and gender is different within indigenous cultures, that's kind of like where my focus is. And I also am really interested in figuring out ways to work on reservations with indigenous youth and also figure out ways that tribes can fund art programs or like artists who are going to school, mm -hmm. like at art institutions or, you know, state universities. Because with my tribe, like there's funding and there's a lot of help if you're going into like the medical field. But like I didn't get a lot of funding for going to get an art program. And I feel like what I'm trying to do with um, my art education is figure out ways that indigenous culture can evolve and indigenous artwork can evolve. And I think that's very important because that's all, that's a huge part of our, our culture. And for some, 
ridiculous reason, we just got lumped into like indigenous art. We just got lumped into like anthropological ways of showing our culture that really, I feel like, just kept us from evolving for so long. And some of us get stuck in it, you know, like, oh, we're going to we're going to keep doing this. Like, we're not going to focus on the fact that like our 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 art processes like were utilitarian. Now it's just turned into like this consumer-based capitalist sort of system. And um we owe it to our ancestors to like really push our cultures forward and evolve whatever mediums we can. It, it's important. It's like learning about my culture and addressing my culture and um, is more of a way of honoring my ancestors. But I don't speak my language and I don't live on my reservation. And um, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, like I am an urban Indian, I wake up and get coffee and... Uh, work on my stuff on my computer and there's like this sense of displacement you know like there there totally is but then I can I also feel comforted because the community that I, that I live in right now is like like hardcore queer and like I feel comfortable here and I can exist here and live here and albeit it's like a it's like a, an Americanized um, homonormative way of addressing your sexuality like I feel safer here than I do on the reservation. Hmm. And I feel safe for having those conversations here. And that's really unfortunate. But like I've come to a place in my life where I realize that my mental health and my physical health are far more important than like putting myself in an area that like might not be the best situation for me to be in. Hmm. Because I've tried like growing up, I've I've tried being like a queer person in Gallup in Albuquerque. I try it when I go back, you know, and like it's it's not only the elders I get it from, it's also like other youth members I get it from, like um, people who aren't supportive, um, people who become angry if you act a certain way. And when I go back, I try to interact as much as possible, but there there still is that sense of being an outsider because I'm not there long enough. Mm-hmm. And there's still that whole conversation about like about being dedicated and present in your community for indigenous cultures. And I want to say that like I am present and I am committed. I just live somewhere else and I'm doing something completely different. But it still has like the native community at heart. Do you have any advice to give to other people out there who are listening to this podcast on how to maintain your creative resource, your wellspring? What what kind of advice would you give? I would say um, surround yourself with creative, positive people, people who you can engage in conversations with and um, on a regular basis. Um, be exposed to their work, their process, and who they're looking at, what they're reading. I really enjoy 
sharing poetry with people, like reading poetry to people or reading books with people and having them do the same thing. And for myself, I a lot of like my inspiration comes, unfortunately, from the internet. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, like I can get onto YouTube and watch old video clips of um, Slater Kinney performing, um, like back in the day, and feel some sort of empowerment from that. You know, knowing that the energy was different and that the stakes were a little higher back then, and realizing how the stakes are different now and how they affect me and what like my call to action is. So a lot of a lot of my stuff comes through reading. I mean right now I'm going through a little bit of a, a writer's block, but I'm and an artist block, but I'm trying not to like focus on it too much. I'm trying not to create too much pressure or stress for myself and realizing that my body and my brain and spirit and soul and they just all need time to rest sometimes. Um, and we and I still need to be inspired by things. I still need to like go out and experience the world. I need to drive to the ocean or make a mixtape or read a book that I've had on the shelf for too long, you know? And before long, I realized, oh, wait, like, I'm starting to have ideas of, like, what to work on next. Um, so, yeah, I think just allowing yourself to have a break, allowing yourself to have fun with your work, being angry and sad and happy and all those things, like, we're taught to, like, fear... Um, our emotions a lot of the time, but it's amazing what 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 comes when what comes from them when we actually feel them and find different vehicles for expressing them. If you could change one thing about the human experience, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> if you had superpowers. <laughs> if I had superpowers. Oh, that's a really hard one. Darn it. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just so many. There's so many problems that I feel like we're just really flawed people. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, I think if there was one thing I could change about the human experience, it would be, I mean, this is something completely random, but it's things that I think about all the time. I, I guess it would be like how we think of time, hmm. um, how we feel like we're always racing against it, or that it's always here, or that there's just um, a clock everywhere we go, or a date and a schedule. I think that really jacks up the way I experience the world and it's all it's obviously like impacted the way um we think about history and our time here and our presence here and how temporary things are and when you put it into a bigger scope of things like thinking about the universe then it's like oh we're only here for a short amount of time you know but really it's like every single day that I can remember up until this point has felt like such a long time already. And it feels like no matter what, like however old I get, like it'll always just feel like an eternity. Hmm. So like, I don't really understand why there's so much pressure or we put so much pressure on ourselves, you know, from experiencing certain things. And then the other, I mean, along with that, I, I feel like it's just capitalism. 
Like, we just need to get rid of capitalism. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, it's a really jacked up way of thinking. So, um, Do you have any advice on how we might start that path? I think it's a beast that has its own... Um, uh, its own time period. You know, I think it, it will eventually dissolve or change into something else or we'll just realize that it, eventually it'll, it might crash and we just realize, like, there's just, we just have to do something else. You know, up until that point, like, I'm not really sure what we can do because at the end of the day, like, I still need food. I still need to go buy it. And, like... I can try to put a garden in the backyard, but, like, that doesn't dispute the fact that, like, there's water shortages and that it's getting hotter. So, like, I don't know. Until we find out different methods of thinking or different ways of living um, or the system just fails, we just have to be as supportive of each other as possible until then. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? This is this is now any... Any last last looks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, a lot of the work, or some of the work that Rise is um, dedicated and invested in doing, is working on uh, putting in out like self-published zines, or at least publish or zines that Rise publishes. And all that means is that we put together a zine or a compilation of writing, and we just get it printed, you know, and then we distribute it. We sell it, we go to book fairs, um, we go to local bookstores, or we just have it on the internet. And um, there was one thing that I was really interested in working on with uh, some of the, with some Diné artists and activists. I was trying to, I want to put together this compilation of zines that focuses on indigenous uh, queerness within Diné culture. Um, so I was, I'm still working, I'm still really interested in working on putting that out there. But, um, I'm also just interested in a lot of um, indigenous poetry, critical inquiry, just whatever writing or artwork I feel like needs to be exposed. Like, I want to help people out. Like, I want I want to help people get their work out there. Um, I want to help put together a collective voice and collection of ideas of the current state of indigenous affairs, um, whatever they may be. So if you um, if you have any ideas, suggestions, or feedback, you can contact either Rise or myself at burymyart, B-U-R-Y-M-Y-A-R-T at gmail.com. And you can also purchase uh, some of the posters and the zines off of my Etsy account, which is just, I believe, etsy.com slash Demian Denetyege. Or sorry, it's etsy.com slash shop slash Demian Dinet Yeshe. <laughs> Sorry, I forget Etsy does its own thing. <laughs> <laughs>